The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, I'm seeing that a banker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Cas Mudde. My guest today is Evan Smith. Evan is a research fellow in history in the College of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences at Flinders University in Australia. His academic work focuses on Australian, British and South African politics and history. He has published on a broad variety of topics relevant to Radical, including British communism, counter-terrorism, as well as fascism and anti-fascism. His latest book is the very timely No Platform, A History of Anti-Fascism, Universities and the Limits of Free Speech, published by Routledge this year. Welcome to the podcast, Evan. Thank you for having me. So let's start with my introductory questions. First, what was the first sports team you ever supported? I was born and raised in South Australia. So the first sports team that I supported was the Glenelg Tigers, which is from the local AFL league. So Australian rules? Yes. Second, what is your favorite political song? So I think I'd go with a more obscure one, which really influenced me as a teenager, and Deutschland has got to die by Harry Nate Riot. That's a blast from the past. Haven't heard about them for a while. <laughs> Finally, what's your favorite political book? Also, a lot to choose from. But I think something that really influenced me a time ago was Paul Gilroy's There Ain't No Black and Union Jack about race and anti-racism in Britain. So today we will talk mainly about your latest book, about no platforming and the debate about the so-called cancel culture. But I first wanted to talk a bit about your previous work. In 2018, you published a book on British communism and the politics of race. What is, was the politics of race of British communism? My book was about the Communist Party of Great Britain. And they were the first kind of organisation within the British Labour movement that really tackled issues of racial discrimination, anti-colonialism, anti-racism and so forth. So the Communist Party started in the 1920s and had a real kind of anti-imperialist, anti-colonial outlook. And that influenced them when migration happened in Britain in the 40s and 50s and 60s to kind of take up the issue of fighting racism against these recent migrants. They were kind of like quite pioneering in kind of challenging racist assumptions in the labor movement. But my book charted how over time they were overshadowed on one side by kind of migrant organizations and kind of black radical kind of organizations on one side. And then on the other side, by Trotsky's group to have a more hardline, anti-racist, anti-fascist line. Right. The so-called old left is often accused of being dismissive of so-called identity politics, including gay rights. What was the position of the British communist movement in the 1970s? A lot of parties on the left in Britain were kind of sceptical about gay rights and about other kinds of identity politics, what they called new social movements at the time, mm-hmm. but also things like uh, women's liberation. So the Communist Party, along with groups like Militant or the Socialist Labour League or the International Socialists, were kind of wary about gay rights or women's liberation because they were seen as distractions from class politics or kind of bourgeois individualism, which was at odds with class politics. And the Communist Party itself was divided in the 1970s over its attitude to new social movements and identity politics. But my work with Daryl Leeworthy found that there was burgeoning support for gay rights in the Communist Party, which leads eventually to things like lesbians and gays support the minors, which the movie Pride is about. 
So, and finally, what was the role of communist organizations in the struggle against fascism and racism in the 1970s and 1980s, for instance, in the Rock Against Racism movement? Things like Rock Against Racism and the Anti-Nazi League were joint ventures between the Trotskyist Socialist Working Party and the Labour Left. The Communist Party, while it kind of supported it, were sceptical about things like Rock Against Racism and Anti-Nazi League because of the prominence of the Socialist Workers' Party in them, but they eventually got behind it, as did most of the other left-wing groups. But individual members of the Communist Party were kind of less enthusiastic about supporting a, a Trotskyist initiative, and that's kind of also one of those divides that you see in the Communist Party in the 1970s, along with the aforementioned debate about women's liberation and gay rights and that kind of stuff. Right, and it was the Trotskyist SWP, if I remember correctly, that fronted the Anti-Nazi League, right? So moving on to your latest book, before we get into the history, let's clarify some terms. Yep. What is no platforming? What is deplatforming? And what is so-called cancel culture? I think it would be best for the definition of no platform. Just quote one little section from my book. I promise it won't be too long. <laughs> no uh, problem. This is from the book. No platform is at its core a policy instituted by the National Union of Students that has allowed student unions to withhold resources such as union-run spaces and funds from fascist and racist organisations and speakers, as well as disinvite these speakers if invited by certain student groups or encourage protest activities that attempt to prevent these people from speaking on campus, such as pickets. Extending from this policy, some have used the principle of no platform to argue for the disruption of fascists and racists from speaking at universities or from having a physical presence on campus. These forms of disruption although discouraged by the NUS and individual student unions, can take the form of heckling, throwing various things, or the physical occupation of contested base. And that's my quick definition of uh, no platform. <laughs> and so what is deplatforming? Okay, so deplatforming is more related to social media and the internet, I think. It's much more used to kind of talk about when people are removed from things like Twitter or Facebook or like PayPal or stuff like that. So Hope Not Hate, the anti-fascist organisation in Britain, mm-hmm. uh, talks about deplatforming as the, the removing of the far right from online spaces. And that's the kind of difference that no platform is about the real world, in inverted commas, while deplatforming, I think, is much more about the online world. Right. And to a certain extent, you could say that no platforming is, is about not giving the far right a platform, whereas deplatforming yeah. is when the far right already has a platform yeah. trying to take that away. And I guess then that cancel culture is more related to deplatforming? Yeah, I think cancel culture is really just a, a blanket term used to describe a whole lot of things. Things as like that Harper's Open Letter, they talked about people being protested at universities or being removed from platforms online or criticised for campaigns for people to be removed from positions or that kind of stuff. So cancel culture is this kind of broad term, kind of lump a whole bunch of different things together, suggesting that, that people's speech and actions are being dampened down by kind of a censorious mob. Right. So you argue that the origins of the British no-platform movement lays in the anti-fascist struggle of the pre-war period. Can you explain that? Yeah. The inspiration for no-platform, see this in the people that put it forward in the 1970s, are really inspired by the anti-fascist campaign against Oswald Mosley's British Union fascists in the 1930s. That was primarily led by the Communist Party, but also a whole bunch of other people were involved, Jewish activists, Mm -hmm. uh, the Independent Labour Party and stuff. 
and it had a wide range of different things disruption of rallies or campaigns to not let council building be used by fascists and also stopping fascists from marching in the streets so things like the battle of cable street in 1936 right and how did that relate to the no platforming that was introduced at british university several decades later so the kind of the real push for no platform really comes in the early years from the international marxist group and the international socialists as well as the communist party and they said that the tactics that we used in the 1930s to stop fascists from spreading their message from organizing on the streets or in semi-public places could be used on university campuses because originally no platform isn't just limited to universities so that IMG start talking about no platform for fascists in the streets it becomes very more narrow over a couple of years to become national union students policy 1974 which is about that denial of a platform at universities right and by that time we're talking about the national front right <laughs> yeah So the National Front had been around since 1967 when a whole bunch of different far right groups emerged by the mid 1970s they'd started to build a presence particularly after the Ugandan Asians controversy in 1972 and in the years of that 72 to 75 they start to have small electoral not victories because they don't win a seat or anything but they can get a significant chunk of the vote as well as kind of holding street demonstrations and that kind of stuff there's a worry about the growth of the National Front in those mid 1970s years. And so pretty much by the end of the 70s you see the rise of Thatcher and Thatcherism but also the demise of the National Front. But yeah. no platforming is still a case but transforms and it now extends beyond National Front and what we all can agree on are fascists to to include others, right? Yeah, so in 1974 the National Union students introduced their platform as a policy to deny racists and fascists a platform at universities. But by 1980s kind of the National Front had dwindled and split and it wasn't really the same kind of threat that it was in the 1970s. But there were different student activists who said why should it just be no platform for racists? What about other forms of oppression? So there were pushes for no platform for sexists, no platform for homophobes. no platform or pro apartheid speakers everyone could agree that racism was bad but there was still kind of a divide over how the left and student activists should engage with these other forms of oppression and that throughout the 1980s there's a push that well we should have no platform for fascists no platform for racists but we should also have no platform for sexists no platform for homophobes etc right. etc So you see an extension in the different prejudices that are mm. being no platform. You also see a discussion about what is racism, right? And particularly who mm. is a racist. How does that yep. influence the no platforming movement? So there's a push also that no platform should be applied to members of the government, particularly people who are involved in immigration law, the home secretary, the immigration minister, as well as kind of hard right of the Tory party, so people like John Carlyle who was anti-immigration and pro South Africa. So these kind of people that were seen as racist right of the Conservative Party, there's the push that they should also be no platform or that there should be resistance and that could include picketing or disruption of their speak engagements. Now what role does the Oxford Union play in all of this? Maybe you can explain shortly what the Oxford Union yeah. is. So at both Cambridge and Oxford there are these debating societies which are linked to the university like their student groups and they're called like the Oxford Union and then the Cambridge Union 
And then there's other debating societies at different universities, but Oxford Union and Cambridge Union are really seen as prestigious debating societies, and they invite people from around the world. They also kind of court controversy. So the Oxford Union in the 1950s and 1960s would routinely invite Oswald Mosley, same with the Cambridge Union, and there would be demonstrations. There would be attempts to heckle or get Mosley disinvited. And that goes through to the 70s and the 80s that Oxford Union also tries to invite people like representatives of the South African government. And there's a protest that these people shouldn't be given a platform. And that runs through into today. We can see that Oxford Union still invites people who are seen on the hard right or kind of the extreme right. People like Katie Hopkins or Tommy Robinson people from the Front National in France or the AFD in Germany are invited to speak at Oxford Union. And that always generates protest and debate whether these kind of people should be given that kind of prominent platform. It also shows the limits of the no platforming, right? Because mm. nowadays you get the impression that there is no space whatsoever for these kind of far-right voices, but actually one of the most prestigious debating clubs at one of mm. the most prestigious universities still regularly invites far-right voices. Yeah. For quite a while in the 2000s, particularly when the British National Party was getting a lot of attention, there were successful campaigns for Oxford Union and the Cambridge Union not give a platform to Nick Griffin. The BNP uh, leader? Yeah, the BNP leader. He eventually is successful in being invited up to one of the unions alongside David Irving. David Irving is a Holocaust denier. Yes. By this stage, he'd lost the libel case against Deborah Lipstadt, whether he was a Holocaust denier, but he was still invited to debate with Nick Griffin at one of these universities. Although there was a massive protest against it, they were unsuccessful in getting these people disinvited. And so what is the role of this small sectarian group, Revolutionary Communist Party? A lot of people might have heard nowadays about a thing called Spike Online, which is a kind of libertarian, contrarian website in Britain. So people like Frank Faridi or Brendan O'Neill or Baroness Fox as she is now. <laughs> These people have their origins in a kind of small Trotskyist group in the 1980s called the Revolutionary Communist Party. Now, the Revolutionary Communist Party was combative with the rest of the British left. They had a little policies which the other leftist group did kind of like. But from the very early days, they opposed no platform. And they had always this thing of free speech absolutism, the absolute free speech. And this is partly that they had an opposition to censorship and state bans. So they said Marxists shouldn't ask the state to ban fascist groups and they should also not implement things like no platform, that you fight the fascist groups and these right-wing groups through battling their ideas, not through censorship. Now, the RCP changed a lot and eventually collapsed in the 1990s, where the idea of an opposition to no platform and kind of anti-censorship runs through from the 1980s in the RCP into Spike today. Right, which actually has more ties to American libertarians. Yeah, a lot of the politics of the RCP changes over that 30-year period. They're kind of quite far left in the 1980s, and then it shifts and changes uh, at the end of the Cold War in the 1990s, and they become much more libertarian once they fold as an organisation and start this spiked online, which starts around 2000. Right. And they draw closer to similar people in the US, as well as other people in like, places like Australia. And it was found in recent years that the Koch brothers in the United States were giving some funds to spike to have pro-free speech campaigns. Right. 
And at the same time, several people who used to be in the RCP have now become quite close or part of the far right. I mean, Baroness Fox was an MEP for the Brexit party. Yes. Frank Ferreira is a big fan of Viktor Orban in Hungary. Mm-hmm. Yep. They've come full circle. They've kind of merged with the populist right in a lot of ways, although that they do have kind of things that a lot of the populist right would not agree with. They do have a lot of far-right or kind of populist right talking points that makes them able to be invited to write for the Spectator or for the Murdoch Press, particularly in Australia. So people like Brendan O'Neill and Frank Ferreira routinely write for the right-wing press in Australia. Particularly Brexit is the thing that they've kind of got behind, kind of brings their kind of libertarianism and the populist right together. Right. And most of the time they seem to sell themselves more as anti-left than pro-far-right. Yeah, Robinson Crusoe's they're out there on their own like no one else that they have a left-wing tradition but they hate the left and that brings them into that Venn diagram with the far right. Right. So the last few years we've seen an onslaught of op-eds on the so-called cancel culture that is allegedly mm. stifling debate at universities wow. around particularly the Anglo-Saxon world. What do you make yeah. of that? So I think that this really coincides the rise kind of the populist and the far right over the last decade and that universities are still seen as a resistance to the status quo. You know, while there's always been a fear about students, they're no longer radical, violent left of the 60s, 70s. So they're not the Bader Meinhof anymore. They're not <laughs> the Weather Underground. They're kind of like censorious, Orwellian. They're seen as McCarthyite, but also incredibly sensitive and that they can't handle offensive ideas. They can't handle the real world. So there's a kind of a, a massive culture war going on that universities are breeding grounds of Marxism, cultural Marxism and postmodernism but also the students who are coddled, who can't deal with facts of life. And interestingly, you see a very new coalition coming together because obviously this has been pushed by the far right for decades and then maybe by some small Marxist groups like the RCP. But more recently, you see it particularly out of what would be called liberal circles. Mm. If you think about persuasion or most of the people, I would argue, in the, the Harper's letter. Yes, the kind of this idea that the left has become Stalinist and Orwellian and McCarthyite brings together people from the centre-left. In my book, I point to like Nick Cohen, who writes for The Observer, Yes, writes something very similar to Nigel Farage, who is obviously on the far right. The woke left, in inverted commas, worries everyone from that kind of liberal left right through to the far right, and they end up conveying similar things, although they chart them very differently on a lot of other issues. But around this issue, they kind of coalesce. Yeah. So finally, what is the most important misperception about no platforming and so-called cancel culture? Well, I think that one of the things is that how much of this is media attention and how much it actually is a problem. The free speech is under threat and this idea that the universities are echo chambers of the woke left and that all kind of right-wing ideas are expunged from campus is not the case. So both in Britain and in Australia, there were government inquiries into free speech at universities, and they found that despite the media attention, that it wasn't a problem sections of the media made it out to be. A few examples were blown up into something much more than it was. And I think that's what something to take away is that these flashpoints, while they seem to grab the headlines, that they're not typical of university experience in Australia, in the United Kingdom, in North America, that this idea that free speech is under threat on campus is a media sensation more than reality. Right. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Evan. Thank you for having me. If you want to know more about Evan Smith, you can follow him on Twitter at Evan is History. 
His book, No Platform, A History of Anti-Fascism Universities and the Limits of Free Speech, was published by Routledge earlier this year and is available for your local bookshop. So don't buy it at Amazon. If you like this episode, please rate and subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and really melody maker. I'm seeing that a bunker. Playing with his beard. No wonder that that's capital. Turn that a little weird.